in this case, Russell Poole has some very specific criticisms of Las Vegas Metro. Okay. And I want to get your take on what he had to say. He said, and I'm, this is pretty much a direct quote, the Las Vegas homicide guys showed us this whole cabinet of clues that they had just sort of died away and they weren't really following up on. I don't know what he's talking about. Would you have ever showed him a whole cabinet of clues? No. I don't know what he's talking I don't know what he's talking about. Did you have a cabinet filled with clues? We didn't have a cabinet filled with clues. We didn't have a cabinet with anything related to this deal. We had our case files, but we did not have a specific cabinet related to this investigation. So I, I don't know what he's talking about. He goes on to say, we all talked about what a defense lawyer would do with all the contradictory evidence that had come in. And you've mentioned that. Yes. That, I wouldn't doubt that conversation came up. Yes. But wait, there's more. Okay. All right. <laughs> but then the Vegas guys told us that the main reason they would never solve the case was that the politicians didn't want them to. They said the powers that be had let them know the city didn't need an OJ-style circus. Russell goes on to say, I was shocked, but my partner was yucking it up with them and saying he feels the same way about the Smalls case. According to Russell Poole, his partner said, these are just gangbangers with money. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. Twenty-five years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing the gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. Twenty-five years later, once again an exclusive. I interview now retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've heard any of Tupac's songs, you've heard some of the language lightly sprinkled throughout this podcast. Enough said. I'm Lana Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Pac and Big, Episode 5. I've never been and never will be a lady who lunches. But there I was at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, California, alone. It was a late lunch and the place was mostly empty. Fancy? Yes. Well, I was rejoicing and Mickey D's was not going to cut it. After several days of sitting in a dark room with a video editor at a production house near Santa Monica, I was done. We had worked through my script and finished cutting together my interview with Death Row Records CEO, Suge Knight. I'm not given to hyperbole. In fact, editors have often told me I'm too understated. So when I say it was one of the most challenging stories to do ever, believe me. After I got Suge Knight to say yes to the interview, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which runs the central jail, said no. They expressed concern about a previous television interview with the Menendez brothers, with another television network. And in case you don't know, Eric and Lyle Menendez were convicted 25 years ago of killing their parents. A portion of their time in jail coincided with nights. Law enforcement sources told me that they suspected that at one point the brothers plotted to escape the jail, somehow under the cover of a... TV interview. As for Knight, he was behind bars because his probation had been revoked. 
The revocation was based on surveillance video from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, showing him fighting alongside Tupac Shakur just hours before a shooter in a white Cadillac pumped bullets into a BMW, striking both men. The probation revocation trial proved to be memorable, not just because of appearances by the starry roster of Death Row Records, including Snoop Dogg, MC Hammer, and Michelet, but someone within the entourage, one of the suits with a background in law enforcement no less, raised his hand against me outside the courtroom. My crime was that I had the impudence to ask a question about Knight. Days later, after Suge Knight's probation was officially revoked, he was also not especially thrilled with my questioning. Questioning made possible after one of my bosses managed to smooth the way for the interview with one of the bosses from the sheriff's department. But there were more challenges. The way the interview space was configured, there was not enough room for the two camera crews I'd hired for the shoot. It was so cramped, I had to scrap my plan to have one of the cameras focused on me. As we figured things out, Knight was bossing it up. He was reviewing a Death Row Records music video in a tape machine that had to have been supplied by the sheriff's department. When we got ready to roll tape, Knight directed us to crop the shot in a way that would minimize the fact that he was wearing jail-issued threads rather than a fancy red suit. Just before rolling, he told me, I looked like a puppy dog. Not sure what that meant, although I suspect it had something to do with bossing it up. Admittedly, canine couture was not the look I was going for. Knight also told me before the interview officially started in very certain terms that if he needed to find me at home or work, he would and could, even though he was in jail. Hmm, wonder why he told me that before the interview. Even though we were separated by a clear barrier, I believed his unveiled threat at the time. And trust and believe, after now reading 25 years later of multiple incidents related to Knight and Death Row and journalists and others, I have no doubt he meant it. None. I opened my TV story with Suge Knight declaring that September 7, 1996 was a historic day. 25 years later, he proved himself to be absolutely right about that. Just Google the date. The interview did give Knight an opportunity to address rumors about Tupac wanting to leave Death Row Records. I also asked about the rumors that he was behind Tupac's killing. My philosophy is avoiding any line of questioning does not do your interview subject any good. Better to address the elephant in the room. Apparently, I was bringing up a safari-sized herd of elephants to the room. It did get to a point where my questions annoyed Knight, and he wanted me, the puppy dog, to leave. I will say, at that point, I was very grateful for the clear barrier that separated us. Friends and media took his displeasure seriously. In fact, one veteran journalist from Newsweek who's been around the world covering stories, including war, told me if he knew in advance, he would have advised me not to do the interview because of his concern for my safety. Toward that end, for the first time ever, I did check into a hotel, one I'd been to many times before, with the alias, Salman Rushdie. My AKA was a wry acknowledgement that I needed to lay low. I wrote the script in my room. I didn't go shopping. I simply went to that production facility near Santa Monica to supervise the edit of my story. That was about it. But I figured a late lunch at the Four Seasons would be plenty discreet. On my way out after lunch, I passed a small entourage in the lobby. The group consisted of at least three African-American men. At the center was a tall, rotund man. He was well-dressed. Versace, perhaps. I knew he was somebody. I just didn't know who. 
I went back to my hotel, the one where I checked in as Salman Rushdie, and my plan was to spend the weekend doing nothing more than chilling and room servicing. A reporter I met at a convention for black journalists in Tennessee happened to be in Los Angeles. He called and asked if I wanted to go to a party. The host was Vibe magazine. He said the location was the Peterson Automotive Museum, not far from my hotel. As much as I would have enjoyed getting my swerve on, especially after all the challenges attached to interviewing Suge Knight, I'm not saying that there was a fatwa issued against me, but I figured it was a better idea for me to remain cloistered in my hotel. On March 9, 1997, the tall, rotund man I had spotted a few days earlier at the Beverly Hills Four Seasons Hotel was shot in a drive-by as he left that party I was invited to at the Peterson Automotive Museum. That man who helped write the lyrics to the song, You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You, that man who I thought was somebody when I passed him by at the Four Seasons was somebody. He was notorious. An acclaimed rapper straight out of Brooklyn who was selling millions of records via Bad Boy Records, helmed by Sean Puffy Combs. This 24-year-old also lived his life in stereo, both a loving son and father of two, and a lyricist who wove together compelling homicidal tales of the mean streets. As I would write later, he was part Goodfellas and part good father. The notorious B.I.G. and Tupac were once seemingly eternal friends, then mortal enemies, then for all their fans, simply immortal. I want to start at the beginning in terms of you find out that the notorious B.I.G. has been murdered. Correct. Your first thought is? Well, you've always got to think, is it related? Is there some sort of connection? Because obviously, in our case, early on, you had that East Coast, West Coast thing. You had the supposed bounty by B.I.G. on Tupac for a million dollars. You had all these different stories. So you've got to go, all right, could there be? Now we're going to have to wait to hear what L.A.'s got and if they have anything to indicate that. And I don't remember ever. I, well, I don't say ever. I would say there was information, maybe they were hearing that there was some sort of ties with uh, different gangs down there in, in California. I also remember hearing stories about police officers being involved. I think that right. was something that was put out there. So that's at the beginning or as you were investigating the case? Well, I would, I would think it was as the investigation's going on. Okay, let's stick to the beginning right now. Let's, let's, do, let's, let's try to go chronologically. What did you see as being the similarities? And I'll, I'll tell you what I saw as being some of the similarities, but at first blush. Well, the car driving up alongside of the car and shooting into it was the one thing right away. I mean, it wasn't like someone across the street shooting at him. The way I understood it was someone drove up in an automobile on the passenger side of the car and wasn't, I'm going to say Christopher Wallace, it's just easier than saying big, uh, was sitting in the front passenger seat, I thought. And he's a big dude. I mean, size-wise, he's bigger than Suge Knight, I think, as far as the body mass. And he's certainly a lot bigger than Tupac. So he's taken up some space in that automobile. I think he was in an SUV, wasn't he? Yes, he, he was. Yeah. So he's in a bigger automobile, but the people, whoever the people were that did the shooting, drove up alongside and started shooting into the vehicle. I don't know if, I don't remember how many shots were fired. 
did they all go in the door? Did they go, you know, was there some movement? I don't remember those specifics, but I also remember there were other people in the entourage and vehicles behind them. Correct. Did I recall? Correct. In fact, I was the first reporter to get an interview with the notorious B.I.G.'s, Christopher Wallace's mother, Miss Valletta Wallace. Right. Right. And also got an interview with Lil Caesar, who was in the car with Biggie at the time of the shooting. So he wasn't in a car behind. He was actually in the same automobile. Right. And when I interviewed him, now this would have been 24 years ago, he said that Puffy, P. Diddy, the head of Bad Boy Records, was in a car just in front of them. Okay. And that a car with bodyguards was just behind Biggie and Lil Caesar. Okay, right. So right. that was a similarity as well in that there were no bodyguards in the car that Biggie was in. Yeah. There was someone named Damian Butler, right. who I later did meet, Lil Caesar, and the driver. That was it. So I thought, there's a parallel there. And I asked Lil Caesar why the bodyguard wasn't there. And he said... You know, he just wanted to hang out with his friends. So I'm guessing that that's not so unusual that the bodyguards are, are not always with the artist. Although Correct. I do understand that Puff Daddy in the car ahead of Big did have his bodyguard in the car. So that's one thing. Another similarity is guess who was there that night? Orlando Anderson. At the party. Oh, really? Biggie was leaving. Okay, now, is the party, is the, okay, so he was leaving the party that Orlando was at. at. the Peterson okay. Automotive Museum. Yeah, that's, I don't remember all that. You know, it may have been in there. I refreshed my memory. I actually wrote an article about it for Vibe. You know, draw it. Drawing quarter me, but I don't remember oh. it. <laughs> I just don't. I don't no intention yeah, to draw quarter is, you. That you know that you know it's probably in the very file we got, but yeah, that is a interesting parallel there too. And yeah. guess who was with Orlando Anderson at the party at the Peterson Automotive Museum? And this was a party put on by Ooh. the magazine Vibe. Keith Davis, aka Keefy D. Keefy D. So there's there's two players that are in our investigation. Okay, but it wasn't described as the car that was pulling up alongside of there was a possibility vehicle. Oh, okay. Well, you know that was in March, and Davis was there. And from what I understand, he was, and he says he was in Las Vegas. September 7th. Yeah, well, no, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. My my question is, it seems to me Davis was in federal custody at some point. He was during the time of the search warrant when that came down, October 2nd. So that would have been in October of 96. Because, and the, the only reason I mention this is because we had made several trips to L.A., not just to Compton, but we'd talked to the FBI, we'd talked to ATF, uh, members of LAPD, the Sheriff's Office, the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. And on one of those trips, and I can't tell you what day, I'm sorry, we learned that Keefe D, Dwayne Davis, was in federal custody. And we wanted to go to the federal correctional facility that's there in L.A. I think it's called the Metropolitan Detention Center, yes. if I remember right. It's a, fed, some, it's a federal I've been outside facility. of it. And we were told that we weren't going to be able to talk to him. Bye. Because we thought, you know what? We've tried to find this guy, and it's always the this or that. So, sort of like the deal we had with Yafu Fula through Death Row Records. No one wants to do anything or help. But he find wasn't him. with Death Row. So we figured, but he wasn't with Death Row, but his name was, had come up 
and now we know that he's in custody, we thought, well, let's go see what we can, if he'll talk to us. But, and I want to say this was after we talked to someone from ATF, if I remember correctly, and we thought, well, we'll go talk to him, and we got a call. I think we were actually en route, and we got a call and said we weren't going to be able to talk to him. So we never got the opportunity to talk to him when he was in the lockup because we thought, hey, you know, at least you got his attention. I'm not saying he'd have said anything, but at least it was an attempt to, now that we got him located, we can try to talk to him. Why did you want to talk but, to yeah, him? Yeah, that was, that was a, well, his name had come up. How? You know, he was one of the many names as potentially being in the white Cadillac. And that was? That was not a eyewitness saying it. Again, that was hearsay, but it was tips because you had Keefe D, you had the Orlando Anderson deal, you had a Smith, Smith, DeAndre Smith name came up. And this is from calls, anonymous calls. Well, there was there was also stuff coming that came from Compton. Keep in mind we had all, there was a whole bunch of names in the Compton search warrant. Another similarity between the murder of the notorious B.I.G. and Tupac is that reportedly there are about a half dozen off-duty Inglewood police officers that night who were around. <laughs> so what's the deal with? Off-duty police being, I mean, they were, I guess, officially, it was officially sanctioned that they worked at Suge's oh, house okay. that night in Las Vegas, that they right. worked at the 662 Club. Apparently, that was sanctioned. My understanding is these officers from Inglewood, it was not sanctioned. But what is the, what's the deal with that? Well, now sanctioned is is one thing. People, are, what they're doing, and I don't know how California works their overtime, because every place is different. Because it was different when I worked in Phoenix. You you still had to go to the department to get the overtime, but your your overtime pay was paid to you by the company that was hiring you. In Las Vegas, someone wanted police officers for security or whatever the purpose was, they contacted the department. The department would sanction it. The person hiring them would pay the department who then in turn would pay the officer. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, if, if it's a deal. Now, you're saying this wasn't sanctioned, then that's something you have to talk to Inglewood about. I I. Can't say. Wasn't this in a lot, but this was in Los Angeles. Correct. And this was surrounding the night that Biggie was killed, that there were approximately a half dozen Inglewood off-duty police officers. I'm asking the question more, whether it was sanctioned or not. I remember doing a series of stories in New Orleans. And every time I went there, everybody was doing... They had a certain word for it that's just, I can't remember, but everybody was working off duty, every rank. You know, you talk to them, oh, I'm going to my off-duty job. And you just mm -hmm. have to think that that's going to be perhaps an issue if somebody's consistently working for a private company and then they also work for the police department. It seems like there would be the a great potential for conflict of interest. And that would depend on who they're working for and such. Now, my understanding, it's kind of ironic you brought up New Orleans, because I remember, and I can't say it was factual, I remember, Scuttle, that, well, one, New Orleans wasn't paying their officers much. Exactly. So they're supplement, they're, they got to supplement their income by working off-duty. Now, I don't know if the jobs were sanctioned by the department, or those folks could just go out and get jobs. I, I don't know how that worked. But, you know, if you listen to the experts, they'll tell you if you don't pay 
yeah. enough to your employees to where they have to go out and do other jobs just to survive. You, you could, and if it's jobs that aren't necessarily sanctioned or approved by the department, you do run into that issue. There's a lot of departments that have overtime processes where a lot of people work. You know, I, I've heard of it in a lot of places. And, you know, I mean, we had guys, and to me, we were paid a fairly decent wage. We had a lot of guys just like to work overtime, you know, and maybe it was they just like to have that extra money to do certain things, you know, buy certain toys or go on vacations or whatever. Well, I don't have a problem with that, you know. Now, if they're doing something illegal for it, that's a different story. But then the department has to be involved in monitoring that, or they should be. Also reportedly, a New York federal task force had been monitoring Biggie. Are there any parallels with that and monitoring Tupac or death row? Well, I, I know that the feds were investigating death row during the time that our shooting occurred. In fact, it had been going on for some time preceding it. Uh, but that's not unusual. Federal investigations don't have, don't go quickly. And I don't know what they were looking at. So it could take a long time. I don't know what's involved with it. I've worked cases with uh, the FBI that were going on for years in some sort of investigation. But, you know, there are certain cases, depending on how detailed they are, it takes time. And federal agencies got the man, the money, they got the resources to do that, that local agencies most of the time don't. But potentially they could have seen something that would have helped with the Biggie investigation and with your investigation. Oh, yeah. If they saw something... They should have come forward and said something, but I also know that sometimes that doesn't happen because the argument will be it jeopardizes their investigation. Right or wrong, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just saying that there's no doubt that's happened. We discussed and went back and forth a little bit earlier about surveillance and getting surveillance on Biggie because there was this notion that he had been in town September 7th and that he had provided a gun to the shooters of Tupac and said, you know, go out and do this and get revenge. And we talked about the possibility of if there had been surveillance video secured, that that would have been batted down because Biggie consistently denied that he had been there that night. At this point, did you have any suspicion that that story might be true? So maybe discount the story that he was going to pay a million dollars to kill Tupac. But did you ever get any tips suggesting that he was actually there that night, that he handed over a Glock to be used that night to kill Tupac? No. The, the fact is, and I, yeah, they're all going to throw out this video thing, whatever. I guess that's easier said than done. But from what I understood of the notorious B.I.G. or Christopher Wallace, if he's present, people are going to know he's present. I mean, he's not a guy that just creeps around, you know, is a ghost or is in a cloaking device or whatever. He usually has a crowd following him, an entourage and such. Well, there was only one entourage that we heard about, and that was the death row entourage. Christopher Wallace's never came up anywhere from a reliable source other than this hearsay thing that came out. The million dollars, well... That's laughable in itself. Why do you, why would any, we've said it. Who's going to pay a million dollars to do something that you can get done for a, a whole lot less? We already know that for a fact. And the gun. You know, I'm, 
I'm not even going to sit here and play beat the dead horse. That's it didn't happen. Period. Simple. I'm just saying it didn't happen. That's the way it is. He wasn't even without getting the surveillance tape. They said he had an alias that he was in the penthouse. You're just saying didn't happen. Period. He wasn't there. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Now, months after that happened, what what else can you say in terms of tips that came in from the time Tupac was murdered? Because there was, as you've said, this East and West thing that, again, when we spoke 25 years ago, you discounted. There was this Suge versus P. Diddy, Tupac versus Big. So, and then right. Crips versus Bloods. I mean, you have all of these. So, yeah. of all those beefs, what did you take most seriously? I would have taken more of the gang-related Crips versus Blood thing than anything. More than uh, Tupac versus Biggie. The, like the P. Diddy and Suge thing. Well, I'm sure they had animosity. They're the heads of two op opposing recording groups. I mean, to get an entertainer, that's money. Well, and if you want to be a successful business, that's that's what you're supposed to do is get those people. So I sure I'm sure there was some animosity between them. Uh, as far as Tupac and Biggie, well, I know f originally they were supposedly good buddies, and Very then eventually, you know, eventually something happened. I think. If I remember right, when Tupac got shot back in New York, I, he somehow thought Big may have had something to do with that. I don't know what the rumor mill was. Uh, I don't know. And then the obvious story that Tupac had an affair with Faith, I think it's Faith. Faith Evans. Faith Evans, who would have been uh, Big's wife. You got to remember... Everything I ever learned, neither one of them were gang members. They didn't. Tupac may have hung around with people and portrayed himself as, you know, well, tattoos don't make you a gang member. You know, he wasn't a true gang member. Christopher Wallace Big, as far as I know, was never a true gang member. I think it was. They're in an industry that, guess what makes the money? <laughs> you know, if if making you money, if the money maker is talking bad about cops, talking positive about gangs, talking about whacking each other, shooting each other, or whatever, if that's going to bring in the money, guess what they're going to do? I mean, I think that's true in any art industry. And uh, violence you know, sells. There was nothing. There was there was nothing. So there was no hard evidence that was ever given to us. Now, if if somebody had it and didn't share it, uh, then I can't answer that. But there was nothing. Then there was absolutely nothing substantiated that said East Coast had Tupac whack. I can't say what happened as far as L.A.'s deal. If they ever got anything to say West Coast was responsible for that. I know that that was something they were looking at, but I know they were looking at a couple of things. And I know we talked about earlier the song Hit Em Up, in which Tupac goes very hard into Biggie, including saying that he slept with his wife and... I heard that, yes. And 25 years later, it's one of the most popular Tupac songs. Almost a half a billion people have watched it on YouTube. And it's and streaming, it's like up there, one of his two most popular songs. So what does that tell you about that song? It's popular. It doesn't tell you it's factual. What it tells you is it's a popular song. But I don't know. What did, what did Faith Evans say? What did, what did Faith Evans said? If I remember right, she denied everything. When I interviewed her, she did. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who am I to say she's lying? I don't have anything to say she did. She's, she lied about what happened. So, 
I had also heard that Tupac was angry, and this was from sources within Death Row, that Tupac was angry with Biggie because he used a sample from a song that he was planning to use, uh, get money, take money. They they both did it. And in fact, that sample was used behind Hit 'em Up. Had you ever heard that? That was about a particular sample that really was behind the beef? I don't remember any specific song. I just heard that there was some disagreement as far as someone plagiarizing or using somebody else's work, possibly, whether they used it ahead of someone or just copied it or whatever. I did hear that when word came out that the notorious B.I.G. had been killed, Death Row Records started playing the song Hit Him Up. Oh, So they took that seriously. Yeah, why not? I says, I, I bet that was a good publicity deal. I mean, there's... They were rejoicing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a publicity deal. I says, hey, the top entertainer for my big opposition is dead now. And it, could it have been tit for tat? I'm not saying it couldn't, but I'm not the one you need to talk to about that. That would be Los Angeles. Got you. I'm certainly not I'm certainly not going to say what they did or didn't do or or uh what information they have that was their case. Well, since you mentioned that, let's talk about the, I mean you're <laughs> you're leading me right into it. Okay. In investigating this case, I learned for the first time about LAPD's robbery homicide. And it's my understanding, and as I was told, they investigate, they take on high-profile cases. My understanding is that initially they didn't examine the Biggie Smalls case. Here's how I understand. This is how it was explained to me, because I know I've asked this question before. You have your different bureaus or precincts, you know, Rampart, North Hollywood, whatever they are, you know, I know they've got several. The way it was explained to me is they have detectives at each precinct that handle crimes in those precincts. And I think they actually, some of them, they work homicides in those particular areas. If you have a homicide in Rampart, they got detectives to work that. If it's going to be a high profile thing, this RHD, robbery homicide division or whatever, they may come in and take it over because they may have the manpower or whatever. In Las Vegas, we had a homicide section. Uh, when I left, we had three squads. You had a, a sergeant, and there was at least two, maybe three teams of six. So I don't remember if we had 18 detectives in homicide then when I left. I just, I just don't recall. But that was it. We didn't have a separate special investigative unit. We didn't have the manpower for that. Or woman. You realize Los Angeles police lost yeah, woman power, excuse me. (laughs) Personnel power. Uh, Los Angeles is a huge agency. They've got to be four, 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 at least four times bigger than Las Vegas. So, but you know, there's a lot more people there and such. And if you look at it, I don't I don't know what the crimes per capita is or anything like that, but you know, there's a lot of people and a lot of things going on in Los Angeles. And because you've got that it's the quote entertainment capital, so to speak, you got all these stars, celebrities or such. You probably got those special people to do that. I don't know. Was RHD the ones that handled the O.J. Simpson case? I don't remember. I know they handled. Or was it? Or was it the specific area? I I don't remember. I don't remember either. But I do know that Ennis Cosby, the son of Bill Cosby, they handled that case. And RHD did. Correct. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, to me. When you have someone who's known to everybody, you know, I would bet that if 
guys or gals working from a particular precinct originally had it and had to pass it off, they probably didn't like it. You know, because a lot, you know, there's there's things that happen. And gee, here's a here's a news flash, which I'm sure you already know. There's cops that got some pretty big egos, just like any industry. There, you know. So I'm sure you some guy who's got an idea and he's gonna do this is his uh, career case or whatever, and you take it away from him, I'm sure that's gonna upset them. So it's my understanding that in the initial during the initial stage of the investigation of Biggie Smalls, there was quite a lot of man and woman power, personnel power put toward the investigation. And I remember one article I read referencing your your sergeant detective, Kevin Manning, because they were saying L.A. is putting so many resources toward the case, and it's just you three guys who are working on it. Right. And so what about that, that they, L.A. initially put so many more, a lot more resources toward the investigation versus three? L.A. probably has a lot more resources available to put towards an investigation. That's my first thought. Uh, again they they have this kind of clientele they've got these special groups that can work these things so be it okay no i, I remember seeing a a comment from your sergeant kevin manning says yes they have all these people but it's not solved one thing i talked about some similarities differences one there was a composite oh yeah they Seems to me they had a composite fairly early on. We never had, we never had anybody to do that. Like I said, Yafu Fulu was the only maybe that he thought he could ID him, uh, and we were all and we were all set to show him a photo lineup if we could have got him, but we it never happened. There was no other immediate. There was no other direct witness. I've said this time and time again that said they could describe anybody or identify anybody other than the black arm. And you're not going to get very go very far with just that ID. Um, oh, no. Black arm. You could make a drawing of a black arm. Okay, now put it to a body. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's a very distinct tattoo or scarring or something on there, and that wasn't there. So, Following the death of Biggie Smalls, did you ever go to Los Angeles to follow up on the case there? We did not get involved in any of the Los Angeles shooting because I know we talked to somebody from LAPD. Uh, you've mentioned Fred Miller. Right. I don't know why Edo, I don't know why Edo sounds familiar. And then uh, Russ Poole, I know because I talked to Russ Poole briefly and since then, I've heard some things that he supposedly said. So that's how I know that name. Let's jump into that. Okay. Russell Poole. I did meet him, as I said, at Robbery Homicide in the offices there. My impression of him was that he was very earnest, very driven. His father, also in law enforcement, they were kind enough to invite me, invite my crew. Lowell sound man, Tim, photographer, to dinner and, you know, made us a very nice dinner. I also remember Russell Poole saying that his brother was missing and he spoke of him quite lovingly. What's your recollection of first speaking with Russell Poole? Was he by phone? No, no, this was at our office is what I recollect. Uh, you've mentioned Fred Miller. I think Russell Poole was there. And again, the Ito, the last name of Ito, Detective Ito, I, I don't remember if he was there or not. You know, I can't remember all these. It's In just, Las Vegas, yeah, they came to you. There were some LAPD detectives that came to Vegas. I I only had brief conversations with Russ Poole. There, there was no in-depth conversations. Uh, I know talking to him, 
I think someone else was more in depth in the conversation with him uh, that I recall. But yeah, we talked a little bit, but it was nothing where I made any substantial comments or quotes to him. Okay, let me ask you if you recollect any of the following. Do you recollect him talking about dirty L.A. cops being involved in Biggie's murder? I don't right off the top of my head, no. I don't remember that. Now, as we delved into earlier, there have been a lot of negative things said about Las Vegas Metro. A lot of times the reason it's for the condemnation is because the case hasn't been solved. I mean, that's the specific. Las Vegas Metro is bad because the case hasn't been solved. But I have noticed that even though the case hasn't been solved by LAPD, Valletta Wallace was very unhappy and spoke very disparagingly about LAPD. But when you are reading stories and seeing stories, you don't see the same level of condemnation for some reason for LAPD regarding not solving Biggie's case. But as I said, it's just a lot of time I I simply see it presented. Las Vegas Metro is bad because they didn't solve the case. Sometimes people will say, you know, they, they didn't care, sloppy. In this case, Russell Poole has some very specific criticisms of Las Vegas Metro. And I want to get your take on what he had to say. He said, and I'm, this is pretty much a direct quote. The Las Vegas homicide guys showed us this whole cabinet of clues that they had just sort of died away and they weren't really following up on. I don't know what he's talking about. Would you have ever showed him a whole cabinet of clues? I don't know what he's talking about. Did you have a cabinet filled with clues? We didn't have a cabinet filled with clues. We didn't have a cabinet with anything related to this deal. We had our case files, but we did not have a specific cabinet related to this investigation. So I I don't know what he's talking about. He goes on to say... We all talked about what a defense lawyer would do with all the contradictory evidence that had come in. And you've mentioned that. Yes. I wouldn't doubt that conversation came up. Yes. But wait, there's more. (laughs) But then the Vegas guys told us that the main reason they would never solve the case was that the politicians didn't want them to. They said the powers that be had let them know the city didn't need an OJ-style circus. Russell goes on to say, I was shocked, but my partner was yucking it up with them and saying he feels the same way about the Smalls case. According to Russell Poole, his partner said, these are just gangbangers with money. Well, I don't know where that conversation was. I wasn't present. Your response? I, I, I never said any of that. In fact, I know... You never said that. Since this has gone on, that Russell... I think Russell Poole did a book or a movie with some other guy. And, in fact, someone actually called me. And it was... Well, they not called me, emailed me. Because, like I said, I've had friends from Europe get in touch with me about different things. And there was a quote that this person, Carlin, Carson, Car- somebody that was affiliated with Russell Poole in putting out a book or a movie. Yes, a, a book that I know of, and there may have been a documentary okay. as well. This person supposedly says somewhere that Russ Poole told him before Poole died that Detective Brent Becker told him what you just said about the politicians and all that jazz. He specifically name-checked you. Named me. Specifically named me. And I can say bullshit. In fact, I could get all kinds of nasty words in here. But I am here to tell you, those words never came out of my mouth. 
I, I'm not saying someone didn't say it because I don't know. I wasn't with them the whole time. Were they uh, back in a different room or something? When we were in our area where our desks were and stuff, I never had a co conversation with anybody. I've never had such a conversation with anybody on any case related to politicians or anything in the image of Las Vegas. That's never come, that's, that's never come up in any of our conversations. First of all, I could give a shit less what a politician thinks. So <laughs> anybody that knows me will say, you know, there's the first problem with that conversation. And then the image of Las Vegas. Well, I'm not the one that determines it. And I'm only speaking about myself. I, you know, I don't want to throw Mike and Kevin on because they aren't here. I'm just saying for me, the image of Las Vegas isn't even in my thought process for anything. I'm at the time I'm working murders. I'm trying to solve the murder. If it's going to embarrass somebody in a political position, actually, I'd probably enjoy that myself because I don't like politicians. So if you can throw mud on their face and connect them to something, I'd love to do it, but I can't think of anybody. So it didn't happen. Not with me, anyhow. So the area where you met with him would have been the same area where we met? Yeah, that big room. Now, Right, and it's open. That's a You know what that room is. Now, the lieutenant has their separate office. Right, there's right. The interview, I remember yeah, to There's side. the interview rooms that are on the other side. of. You know, when you first walked in, you had the, the I don't remember what their titles were, the, the secretaries, the ladies that worked there. Lieutenant's Administrative off, assistants. Yeah, yeah, the lieutenant was off to the right. The interview rooms were off to the left because there was a little hall that led back to where we were at. We had a room that I think more case files were stored in there. And then we had all those bookcases you saw in there with, with files in there. And then we had that other section. There was a little room on the other side of the wall of the lieutenant's office. It's where the coffee pot and all were in the restrooms. Now, I don't remember if there was any meeting in there or not. I, I just don't recall that. If they could have, I just, I just know that I never had that kind of a conversation with anybody. I mean, how do you imagine he came up with this out of thin air? Well, one, he either made it up or two, Someone did say that, but it wasn't me. I don't know why anybody would say that. Back then, okay, the night of the shoot, the Tupac shooting, well, no, because the night of the shooting, the Tupac shooting, Larry Spinoza was our lieutenant. Correct. I met him. Well, he wasn't there that night. You know, I think he was at a conference or something. So it was just Kevin Manning, my sergeant, Mike Franks, and I, my partner. Eventually, Larry left Homicide, and then Wayne Peterson came in, and he became the lieutenant. And I know that Wayne was the lieutenant for quite a while, because I know he was the lieutenant when we were in Los Angeles for the revocation hearing on Suge Knight, because he did, I did, not I, meet him. He did some interviews or press stuff related to that. So he would have been our lieutenant when the Biggie Smalls shooting happened. In fact, he was our lieutenant. That would have been 97. I don't remember when he left because we had another lieutenant come in that was there for a while before I left. So Wayne Peterson was there for quite a while, I, from what I remember. So he would have been the lieutenant then, and he may have been in some conversations, but I don't see Wayne saying that either. Wayne is a pretty, yeah, Wayne's pretty, I just don't see him saying such a thing, but. One quote I do recall him saying is basically, you know, about Tupac, live by the Glock, die by the Glock. And I'm paraphrasing. Oh, Wayne did? Okay. Well, Wayne wasn't there the night of the shooting, I know. I don't, like I said, I don't recall specifically. He probably came into the section October, November, maybe. 
So it would have been a month or two after the fact. But if he said that, what was that in an interview or something? Correct. Yeah, well, I wouldn't have been there for that. So, Well, I will say this is attributed to Russell Poole, but I've heard other people. I've heard at least one journalist say this. I've heard somebody else in law enforcement say virtually the same thing and always quoting somebody from Las Vegas Metro. Really? Do they say who they're quoting? No, they they just Las Vegas Metro police, the investigators on the, you know, it's attributed to the investigators. Well, no. I can tell you that up until 2001, now, Mike Franks retired a year before I left Homicide. So from 96 to 2000, it would have been me and Mike Franks. And then from then until retirement, it would have been me and whoever my partner was at the time there. And then Kevin Manning was the sergeant the whole time. Well, yeah, Kevin Manning was my sergeant the whole time. So we were the investigators. And I'm telling you, this investigator didn't say that. I can't believe Mike Franks would have said that. Or Kevin Manning would have said that. So I don't know who they're quoting. I, I just don't know. Okay, as I said, it's it's it comes up over and over again. And the other thing that's often attached is that at the time, Las Vegas was trying to be family friendly. And having a case like this was no benefit to that. So that, that was... A reason that the pressure was put on allegedly and they can say that about the family friendly thing because shoot that was part of the pr thing i think that was going on within las vegas that had nothing to do with me that had nothing to do with us as an investigative team again that's politics and i've already told you what i think of politics so that's uh that's that's hogwash didn't come from me I would like for them to quote, tell me who it was, other than I know that this guy said Russ Poole told him I said that, and I can say that that's a down and out lie. And if, I'll say a damn lie, I'll say a lot of other things if we wanted to get nasty about it, because, go ahead. you know, I just, Russ Poole is dead. So if Russ Poole... I can't, I'm, I'm not saying Russ Poole told that guy this. He's, this guy is saying Russ Poole said it. But guess what? A lot of people say a lot of things once everybody else is dead. I've seen that in court time and time again. And in fact, it's come up on this case time and time again. So, no, I did not say that to Russ Poole. I can't, I can't deny it any more than I, you know, it's a lie. Pure and simple. I didn't say it. Well, I did have someone ask me in the context of working on this podcast about how do you put it about, and it more relates to this quote that Poole says his partner said, they're just gangbangers with money, that there would be an antipathy toward investigating the murder of a successful rapper because the person investigating is making a fraction of the money that the person who's killed. So that was presented. And when, when this person said that, I was like, well, there was this quote. Your take. Well, that, first of all, Los Angeles, I mean, how many cases do they have where the victim is making a whole lot more than they are? I mean... RHD is working the high-profile cases, I guess, entertainers and stuff. Well, I would think most entertainers make more than cops. If they if they don't, they aren't a very good entertainer, apparently. So, I so would that have an impact on the way you would investigate a case no. if the person you're interviewing makes a lot more money than you no, and you're that has, somehow that resentful? Has no, that has absolutely no bearing on anything as far as the investigation goes. Uh, it's actually insulting if someone were to say that to me, if, if they did, because I don't, 
look at dollars and cents as far as the person who is murdered. What I don't understand what that has to do with anything. If if a police officer thinks that way, then there's a problem. That's a pretty small-minded individual, and that there's no place for that. Uh, like Russ Poole is saying, his partner said that stuff. I guess my question is, did he name his partner that said that? Yes. Oh, he did. Okay. Well, then that, that's between Russ Poole and his partner because I wasn't there for any conversation like that. So I, I don't know what's going on. I can just speak for myself and the guys I worked with. And again, you said that you never got into a conversation about dirty L.A. cops being responsible for the notorious B.I.G.'s murder. No. I know I've read about it. And the but not with Russell. Not with Russell Poole. And the closest thing I got to any kind of, in, I'll call it internal related things with Los Angeles. Internal is, affairs. Yeah, internal affairs is when we were doing the, you know, started the Tupac Shakur killing, you know, you had all these different death row security people around and we were starting to identify people. Like I said, less, uh, an investigator, I don't remember if he was a sergeant or he might have been of rank. I don't know. Someone from Internal Affairs from Los Angeles Police Department came over and talked to me about it in people we identified. And I had told him, I says, no, there was no direct information, photograph, you know, because of getting a sheriff's card that we had tying anybody there. I just, I do remember the name of a person coming up that, and I, I sure I told him the name. I just don't remember it. I says, I know this name came up in uh, tips and stuff. It may have been a Los Angeles police officer. I just don't remember the name. It started like with an MC, McSupplin or other. And uh, I remember telling him that, but that was it. And I never heard anything after that because I have nothing to do with, you know, if it was a type of investigation where they needed more, they never recontacted me for anything. So... And there was no formal interview that I that I remember. So my understanding is that Russell Poole very much did believe that these you know bad cops uh, in association with Suge Knight were responsible for Biggie's death. And in addition, he was pulled off the case after coming to that conclusion. And he later resigned, basically, from what I've read, out of protest. Okay. So I kind of I kind of remember hearing something about there was some issues between him and the department, and I remember that he was the one voicing something about police corruption or whatever verbiage you want to use within L.A. PD over this case. Uh, right. But I don't know any of the particulars of it. Like I said, the only time I ever got drug into it was when this little quote came out that this co-author or whatever aligned to me. And that was just because a friend from, I want to say it was from the UK, said, hey, you see this? And I, I was, I'll admit I was pretty pissed because I'm thinking... If you're going to quote me, at least quote it correctly if I'm saying something. And this was... There was never any conversation like that. Period. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been the on the receiving end of things from Los Angeles over this with the Suge Knight revocation hearing. I mean, it made the L.A. Times, for Christ's sake. So, whatever. But this one, that, that's just not right. <laughs> okay. So my understanding is that I know at one point Russell Poole did reach out to me even after we'd done the interview and sent me an email after he was no longer with LAPD. And my understanding is that he was still very much active in trying to get the word out about his view of what had happened. 
and that he was talking to L.A. sheriffs, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, about what he believed happened regarding the death of Biggie Smalls and the involvement that he believed that LAPD uh, had. And that's when he was in the process of that, that's when he passed away. 24 years after the murder of the notorious B.I.G., 25 years after Tupac Shakur was murdered, no one has been arrested. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro Detective Brent Becker about Tupac's murder, you have a few ways to reach out. Use the hashtag TupacMurderPodcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast.com. You can type your question, record audio or video, and send it in, and we'll get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via TupacMurder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lennon Ozizway reporting. Tupac's murder was his case, was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lennon Ozizway. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. Special thanks to Spider for helping me untangle a big web. You've been listening to Lennon Ozizue reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next on Tupac's murder was his case. So if I understand correctly, the only reason you have given me the answer you know who killed Tupac Shakur is because I asked. Yes. And you trusted me to give me a truthful answer. Well, I've known you for 25 years. Like I said, when you came to our office to do your America's Most Wanted thing, and Mike especially, you met Mike. And Mike's your partner. You called him a curmudgeon for crying any sakes. Uh, Mike liked you. And, and you were a, quote, I'll call you a media type at the time. And we weren't ones to talk to the media about much of anything. You've been listening to Lennon Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. An Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one. <laughs>